This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, August 30th, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. A federal judge says police can attach GPS devices to your vehicle and track your every movement in that vehicle without a warrant. So how are we to think about being secure against unreasonable searches and seizures when our every movement might be legally tracked without court approval? Cato Institute Research Fellow Julian Sanchez argues it's time to rethink our notions of personal security and government surveillance. We have two interesting cases from the last month uh, involving the government's power to track you using uh, GPS technology uh, without a warrant. There was a decision out of the Ninth Circuit that held that uh, the government didn't need a warrant, even though they had snuck onto uh, the property of their target, uh, the curtilage of the property, a traditionally protected area, to plant a GPS device on the target's car. Um, And the court ruled that it was not really a search when they snuck on to plant the device, um, and that moreover, it was not a search when they then used that device to track the target's motions. And that was actually uh, pretty consistent with existing precedent. Uh, Judge Alex Kaczynski of the Ninth Circuit uh, wrote a sort of blistering dissent from the refusal to rehear the case on bank uh, with the full the full panel of, uh, of judges, uh, but he focused a lot on the idea that this was trimming back the traditional right of privacy in the curtilage of the home, your porch, your driveway, your, the sort of surrounding area. Um, but there's a couple cases out of the, uh, I think this the 70s, uh, Knotts and Caro that uh, traditionally have drawn the distinction between uh, location tracking in public and location tracking in private. And so the traditional idea was if you have a, a, a tracking device, sort of, they didn't have GPS then, now it would be a GPS device um, that's used to find out the location of something inside a home or some other private place, that uh, constitutionally requires a warrant or it violates the Fourth Amendment. Um, but if all you're doing is tracking a vehicle, let's say, and how it moves on public roads, the logic was always, well, that's just doing what a person could do by visual observation because your motion on a public street is always, is, is, is of course, public. Um, and so the using a tracking device to accomplish what you might have accomplished by following someone around was not itself constitutionally problematic. It didn't constitute a search. Uh, interestingly, there's a, uh, a very different opinion out of the D.C. appellate court um, where the decision was, uh, was, was the opposite. It was said that the, the use of a GPS device without a warrant, or technically they had actually gotten a court order to authorize the installation of, of a tracking device, uh, then the warrant had expired and they just kept on using it anyway. Um, and the distinction that court made from the traditional rulings was that this was extended surveillance over a period of about a month and a half, 24 hours a day. Where was, where was the car and where was it going? And the logic that the court applied there uh, I think is actually very interesting because it shows how it may be necessary to uh, tweak or recalibrate our thinking about what constitutes a Fourth Amendment search in the context of modern technology. And what the court there said was, look, it may be the case that uh, it's not a search, it's not an invasion of privacy to, uh, to follow a car on a particular journey, uh, that it's not reasonable to expect. This is the constitutional test here is the reasonable expectation of privacy. Nobody can reasonably expect that their driving along the road on a particular trip uh, would not be observed by any number of people. 
Uh, the problem, the court said, is that it is actually pretty reasonable to expect that you are not being monitored 24 hours a day by someone over the period of a month and a half. And it might well be that every particular trip you might take, you realize that that particular trip is not private. But what the court found uh, was that, uh, that that didn't mean it couldn't be the case, that it was private, that you did have a privacy interest in the totality of your movements over the course of a month and a half. Um, this is what they called the mosaic theory. Somewhat ironically, they uh, borrowed an argument that the government has itself used in trying to deny Freedom of Information Act requests. Um, the government has often argued that they need to uh, redact or omit uh, certain information from documents that are released under these requests, uh, not because the information itself is secret, but that if you put together a lot of that information with some other facts that are publicly known and you sort of understand some things about the law and, and, and technology or whatever it is, you could figure out the actual secret information by putting it all together. Uh, and so the court essentially said, well, the government has an interesting theory there. We buy that. Uh, we buy that. Uh, you might, for example, uh, have a, uh, let's say someone's having an affair. Let's say uh, uh, they, they, you know, they go out to the pharmacy, they buy some prophylactics, uh, they, and then you know, an hour later they go and meet their date for dinner, um, and then they, you know, they, they leave together. Uh, and they do this, you know, weekly, on a weekly basis. Well, it might be that, uh, you know, the stop at the pharmacy is public, you're in the restaurant in public, you drive home on a public street. Um, but putting all those things together and seeing the pattern, the correlation, you know, it's stopped by the pharmacy every time, uh, that actually reveals a, a fact that was secret. Um, and I think we see this a lot. Uh, in in cases in, in in cases involving novel technologies, where we need to think about what constitutes a search in a way that uh, that renders traditional categories of public and private uh, problematic. I mean, the original case of this is back in the 20s, a case called Olmstead, where the Supreme Court held that it wasn't a search to do a wiretap. And the reason they held that was they thought, they thought, we know what a search looks like. A search is when someone goes onto your property and looks through your stuff. And a wiretap, well, that was just like listening. That was just, you know, putting a, putting a, a tap on a wire that was off on a public street. Um, and eventually it became clear that, uh, that technology meant it was necessary to rethink what a search means. Um, and it doesn't necessarily, it didn't necessarily mean crossing a property line. And now I think what we need to, to understand, uh, given new technology, is that it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that the, in, the, the particular act you're talking about necessarily involves the exposure of what was previously secret. The Fourth Amendment text itself refers to papers. Yes. That also is just another example there. Persons, houses, papers, and effects. Uh, and those are things that are called out. And, you know, of course, you have to be sort of reasonable about interpreting that. You understand that uh, when they say papers, they mean to call out for, as, as a sort of specially requiring protection uh, the means by which people communicate and express ideas. And so no one really questions that, of course, electronic communication is also uh, uh, sort of within that category. Um, but... But, you know, if you, it also actually interestingly says, this is a word that's ignored in the Fourth Amendment a lot. It says, it doesn't say that people shall be free from unreasonable uh, searches and seizures. It says the right of the people to be secure 
against unreasonable searches and seizures. And uh, traditionally, that's just sort of read out as a, as a kind of superfluous bit of verbiage. But if you look at the founding era understanding of the right of security, um, it actually subtly changes the meaning of the amendment in certain ways. Um, when you, because when you think about security, it changes the emphasis from just what is public or what is private as, uh, you know, as concerns me and the rest of the world, anyone, government actor or not. When you think about security, you start thinking in particular about the effect of government monitoring, about how you are made insecure by, if you've ever seen the excellent movie The Lives of Others, by a state of total surveillance, by a world in which uh, you never know which of your loved ones or friends might secretly be informers, and, and the destructive effect of not having that security. Um, so... In a sense, you, you, know, I mean, you can apply this to the case of GPS. Um, while you're moving around in public, and if you're being tracked by GPS, or if there are surveillance cameras everywhere, so that uh, everywhere you go in public, someone can go back and search through using, let's say, face recognition technology, and track your movements totally in public over the course of a month, a year, however long. Now, is that exposing something that was secret before? Well, no, it's not. It's motion in public. But what's the effect of that kind of architecture of monitoring on the security of citizens, on our security against an intrusive government that, that can use that information against us? Uh, and I think the, the answer is it's, it's profound. We talk about what interests individuals have mm -hmm. in that kind of privacy. Shouldn't we be thinking maybe more in terms of what interest the government has that is legitimate in collecting that information? Well, of course, the government always has, uh, in certain contexts, interest in collecting information, which is why, uh, you know, there's very little they can't do, really, if they're willing to go and get a court order to get a search warrant. Um, but I think the problem is that when there's no need for that judicial showing, uh, then there isn't the kind of detached balancing you need uh, between the state's legitimist interests and the interests of people who are being tracked. And in particular, I mean, I think the, the, the concern has to be um, that, one, the, the degree of a harm uh, to privacy can, can depend on the length of surveillance. So the court, in the case we talked about, held that it mattered how long, you know, Surveillance for one trip is one thing. Surveillance for uh, a month and a half, 24 hours a day is another thing. But you can also think about more localized surveillance involving really large numbers of people. So uh, there was a case recently uh, where the, the police tried to get essentially the cell records for, for basically a, a, an area where there had been a bank robbery. They wanted to essentially know everyone who was in the area. Um, and you could say, well, it's, it's not an invasion of privacy to know that uh, you know, these particular people were in this particular pace at this particular time in public. Uh, but, but again, when you think about stepping back and saying, well, what happens when you have, you know, the government decides after the fact using, let's say, cell phone records, because we're all carrying little tracking devices now, uh, that they want to find out uh, every, the name of everyone who has been attending more than one uh, anti-war rally uh, or... Uh, you know, you know, maybe maybe because there's a legitimate interest in in you know finding out whether someone you know vandalized property or, or committed violence. But when you think about the interests of all the other people uh, who who are you know added to that list somewhere, and when you think about again, think of security. When you think about the chilling effect of that kind of monitoring on 
political activity, not, not necessarily even that something would, would happen to those people, but that they would know that the government has this capability without a warrant to know uh, about their political activities and to get their names. Um, you know, it, it, it implicates interests involving freedom from government monitoring that don't really have to do with the traditional balance between private and public in, in the sense of secret. Julian Sanchez is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Read more of his work at Cato.org.